Amen. Thank you, brother. As in all things, let's go to the Lord and seek his help and favor as we open up his word. Holy Father, we are in awe, even if we consider the very grace that has been given to us today that has enabled us to gather together. The life you've given us, the provision, the abundance. But Father, in such greater measure, what we have received through your Son, through your Spirit, through the work of your word in sanctifying your children. Father, it is a a work and a duty of much fear and trembling to consider the reading and even greater measure the study and the teaching of your holy word. So, Father, help us to set our mind on Christ and to set our mind on things above to grant us now that that divine heavenly perspective as we open your word and, and even as we deal with very practical matters may we know and desire and experience more and more the supremacy the work the person of Jesus Christ at work within us and within this body and as we go about in our daily lives. Father, I pray for your Spirit's power and unction in in speaking your truth and, Lord, in receiving your truth. And may you be honored and praised in all of this today to the glory of your Son and to the honor, the the hallowing of your name. And may we be prepared for your return. And may we be those very salt-laden, spirit-filled ambassadors of your gospel as we do our work each day. And even, Lord, as we serve one another in this body. Lord, that many may be brought into your kingdom to know the great joy, the great satisfaction of Jesus Christ himself. So we ask your blessing on this time, Father. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. It's almost, well it is, sad to be coming close to the end of this letter. I pray and hope it has benefited you as much as it has me and and I know Peggy hearing me in my preparation and pre-preaching efforts of these truths that, you know, not just in the broadcasting of them, but at the wrestling and, and striving in the midst of them. I pray that it has been a blessing for you as well. But as we've slowly made our way through this rich letter of Paul to the church in Colossae, I hope we've begun to see more and more the supremacy of Christ in every aspect of our life. That he is not just a thought or an ideal 
of a great person that we come and, and look upon and wonder at each Sunday. But he is our nearest and dearest, our closest friend, our, our king, the very Lord of heaven ruling in our lives, the great administrator of the daily grace we need just to live and move and walk. And in our last time together, we, we considered this restorative work of Christ as a result of his redemptive work in us in the most fundamental basic relationships of what we looked at, of how Christ himself brings a reordering, a God-ordained proper ordering in the family between a wife submitting to her husband, a husband loving his wife, of children obeying their parents, of fathers training and raising up their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and not exasperating them to lose heart. And now today we're going to look further into that family unit that Paul's been addressing. And and we need to note and remember that in in this time in the Greco-Roman world, this family unit was not the the smaller nuclear family we see today of, of father, mother, husband, wife, and children. It probably and likely, especially in the church, included a much broader group being older children with their own kids, aunts and uncles, grandparents, and now as we see today, even slaves within the family household. And within that family household, the fathers, the husbands being the very masters of these slaves. And we're going to look at the text just under two main points or two main headings. Verses 22 to 25, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at them as the heart of a Christian slave. And verse 1 of chapter 4, and I apologize for whoever it is that came up with the chapter and verse numbering, how they separated this because it is one contiguous unit. But in chapter 4, verse 1, the heart of the Christian master. But as always, I want to stir us up by way of reminder as we focus on what the Lord desires to say to us today. To first and foremost remember, and this is key, Paul's not writing a general letter to be published in a newspaper, to be sold on a book bookstand somewhere in a local shop or market. He is writing specifically to the church, to a group of gathered believers, united in Christ, like we are today here, who have by faith been buried with Christ in baptism, in the likeness of his death, those who have been spiritually raised together in Christ, who have been made alive together in him, all by faith in him and in his work, Christ having forgiven them of all their sins and completely canceling out that certificate of death that was against them, all the decrees against them that had been found in the law, God took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross, and now we are new creatures in Christ. Let that resonate through this whole sermon. What is so critical to comprehend in these indicatives of the supremacy and fullness of Christ that we saw in chapter 2, and we being built up in his fullness, and in chapter 3 as we are now raised up with him, is that Paul is clearly speaking 
to what a, a lot of what we've been studying in Sunday school of our positional unity, our positional reality in Christ as the result of his saving grace that we are now by faith united in him. And it is only, it is only through this union, this unity in Christ, not that we are part of the ontological unity, but we are united in him as a member of his body, a member of his church. And it is only in this union where we should be, where we are enabled to be, to live out, to express, to demonstrate the glory of God in our functional unity. This is what Paul described to us earlier in chapter 3 about the putting off of remaining sin and all of its manifestations, those outworkings of the sinful flesh that still remain, and to put on what he said, the new self, the likeness of Christ, to put on a new heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, binding all of these grace works with the fruit of the Spirit and that of love toward one another. And as we just heard in Sunday school, this doesn't happen by osmosis. This happens by prayer, by going to the Lord, by looking to his word, by letting his word sanctify us. This is the evidence of the sanctifying work of God that is to be found in the church. As those who are a new creation in Christ, we are to continue walking and growing in this. And this is what Paul says even back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. This, this is that mystery, that paradox in the Christian life. And he describes it as we who are already unleavened, but we are to continue getting out, getting rid of, to clean out that old leaven through the power of the Spirit, through the sanctifying work of the Word within us. And the result of all this, the outcome of all this, of what Christ has begun in each of us individually and now corporately in the sanctifying work that occurs in the body of Christ. And the first part of this reality is is what we need to look back briefly in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. The very real result of the gospel work of Christ Hear me, this is key. Only of and by the work of Christ through his gospel. As a result of this transcendent gospel that addresses the universal need of man, that being his sin nature and his guilt before a holy God, is to where we see this new self, this new nature wrought into a man and, and a renewal, a spiritual renovation occurring that is according to the true knowledge of the one who created him. And key to our study today, very key, is in this renewal, with this renewing work of Jesus Christ himself, these distinctives that have previously separated us, these distinctives that man wants to use to create some rationalistic, higher moral standard to address and resolve every distinction that we find in the world is a false, in a false and foolish effort to somehow unite man. These distinctions are now gone and do not matter for those who are in Christ. We see it right there in verse 11. There is no Greek, there is no Jew, there is no slave, there is no free. Paul even goes further and, and says to it in another scripture that they're not man and woman because 
Christ is all, and he is in all. Another way of describing this, for all who are in Christ, both within this positional unity and now alive in this functional unity of the church, within this, this new realm of renewal and renovation by Christ that in his ongoing sanctification, there is no inferiority of one class or ethnicity or people to another. Men and women of completely diverse origins are now gathered together in unity in Christ, sharing their common allegiance to the Lord. Christ is all that matters. He alone permeates and indwells all the members of his body, regardless of race, class, background, position, and life, as we will see. But we need to not only just see this and give a mental assent to this, we need to believe this and live in this, especially today as we look at this passage. In this, this outward living reality of our lives and the life and the love of this church, as a result of that inward working of the gospel of Christ, is that the world needs to hear of and see and experience the life, the love, and the unity that Christ alone brings. And that negates what man wants to raise up as these critical distinctives. This is very necessary reality for our lives. It's worthy of our meditation because we're entering a section of Scripture that directly contrasts and refutes man's rationalism and a false application of the gospel that has now crept into the church. This, this thinking and philosophizing of man to raise up and address those same distinctions that previously divided us People and and even churches are embracing this now as something of a new gospel that they need to address under a social justice gospel or this positional oppression or even something I just listened to very recently this week called intersectionality. These efforts in their various forms are, are starting to gain a foothold even within contemporary seminaries who are quote unquote reformed that somehow through this critical thinking and imposing this worldview, they want to impose some superior morality in the church and attach it to or redefine the gospel under this banner. All that it will do in its approach and its outcome is going to change, divide both society, and it will destroy the church if it's embraced. And if society continues to pursue this, even more so if the church, I pray, God forbid, wake us up. These alternative gospels, these alternative motives of morality, it will break us down section by section by section so much that the foundation of Christ could possibly be eroded. Nothing would be left for us to stand on. For unless we are standing upon Christ alone, his word alone, his truth alone, and him and his word being our motivation, our life, and declaration of his transcendent gospel, we may become easily swayed and give in to these agendas. I'm not going to go into intersectionality in this sermon. If you want to talk about it or if you've heard about it, we can talk afterwards. But 
it's something new on the horizon that's even coming into the seminaries, as I mentioned. It's very sad. But as you know, I know many of you brothers and sisters know this very well, members of those who are in Christ, if we attempt to move or to morph or to use the gospel to address social, economic, ethnic, man-focused distinctions, rather than use and see and rely on this transcendent gospel of Christ to address the universal condition of man and his sin, then we're promoting and embarking on a different gospel. And Paul, in a subtle but very direct way, undermines the idea that, that the gospel of Christ is to be used to somehow Christianize the world, to bring about some form of social justice. And he does this in the same manner and with the same direction that the gospel is targeted at, the heart of man. And some very, I think, important critical and historical information to remember in the context of these letters in the first century church, in the time of these apostles, that under Roman authority, there was undeniable oppression. There was very, a great deal of power in the Roman regime that forced peoples of all nationalities, backgrounds, races, ethnicities, even religions, to exist together, to live together. There was very real hatred and division. But in the midst of this, was the first century church. But we need to be careful we don't take our our modern thinking, our modern categories of thought and read them somehow into the first century church with regard to slavery, what Paul talks about here. Because in that time, slavery looked very different even from what it does in, in modern liberal democracies and even in our own country in 19th century um, in the antebellum south. But in the midst of this, this vast Greco-Roman empire, there were some 30%, even maybe even more of its inhabitants were bound or forced into some form of slavery, some form of, of bond service, whether through conquest, whether through indebtedness to one another. Some did voluntary obligations of service, But Roman citizens considered work beneath their dignity. So slavery was a very integral part of their society and economy. And this ranged from very grim working conditions in the salt mines, but even to household slaves that helped with the business business ventures and, and even family care. Slaves were commonly used and traded as heartlessly as tools and animals. But slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not racially biased or biased at all. It, it included all races, all ethnic groups, all nationalities because of the widespread military op- occupations that happened in that time and even within the social classes of that empire. So there was not a real sense of, of solidarity with the slaves in recorded history in this time. But neither do we see that there was any a real legal freedom or a real option for legal freedom or appeal for the slave because as a freedman, they'd find it very difficult to even make a living. And the drive for, for any type of emancipation in this time was very rare. And most accounts of the freedmen were obliged to work in virtually the same conditions that they were when they were slaves. 
But irrespective of the level of integration of slavery into their society, we know, we agree that this institution is not right. It was not right, no matter how economically or socially beneficial it was. We've got to ask and kind of consider, how did the apostles address this very vexing issue of slavery? And and how did the New Testament church deal with this and address this and live with this? What did they stand on or embrace to look at the means to address this opposition, this very real social, economic, ethnic differences and divisions they were forced to live under? We think about it, the church in comparison to the Roman Empire at that time was a very comparatively small religious group in this vast, all-powerful, authoritarian empire. But they really, you don't see at all in Scripture their drive and motivation to form some kind of a legislation or influence government policy. Or they lacked even the categories of our modern-day democracies where they could conceive of of modern-day social actions. And this is what Paul is going to address, what we must understand here. The early church, the church in Colossae, the church in Ephesus, and all the others, including ours, they did not understand their calling in Christ this way. And according to these, these categories and these actions, their, their identity, our identity, must be found and understood to be to, to be believed in and lived upon that as members and citizens of a heavenly kingdom within a new realm, a new creation, a new realm of unity and reality that has been inaugurated by God in Christ. And in light of this, we see in verse 22, looking into the heart of the Christian slave, Paul dives right in here. Boom, slaves. In all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Paul wrote in a very similar fashion to the families at the church at Ephesus. So you might want to keep one finger in Ephesus, or Ephesians, excuse me, not in Ephesus, but in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. I want to read that real quick because Paul adds some descriptions and explanations there that we don't find in this letter to Colossians. But Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, he says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Very similar so far. With fear and trembling. In the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. So we see some very close similarities, but Paul brings some aspects out that I want to look into it. But slaves, doulos, slaves and also, in a sense, bondservants. And Paul intentionally here addresses them as as real people, not as some property, not as subhuman, 
as a person who is a very real part of these extended families and also members of the church at Colossae. And they are responsible for their own actions. This is key. And he also addresses them in the same Greek form that he's used throughout the, this, this letter. He urges them, he exhorts them to obey, much like he did the wives and the children earlier. He urges them to obey in all things their masters who are on earth. And keep in mind that this, this application has for, it does have application for us in today in our own work environment. We can rightly make a, a homiletical decision to apply this context of Scripture and Paul's exhortations here to modern-day workers, to modern-day jobs, to employee-employer relationships. But keep in mind, as we're all aware, both the employees today are not under these historically legally binding frameworks that these slaves were under. However, in saying this, we also see that Paul's commands here to those slaves, to these slaves, actually enunciate some very basic principles for all believers. Describes how we should serve one another. And note through this passage in in Ephesians 6, Paul doesn't make any social comment or any effort to reform this custom of slavery. He's addressing himself to Christians in the church directly, and which includes these individuals as slaves. The issue here was, was not that of acceptance or reformation or abolition of an institution that was, that was sanctioned by law or part of the Greco-Roman society. Now, Paul is addressing the tension here between the freedom that is given to the believer in Christ and the slavery in which slave, Christian slaves are to continue to serve their earthly masters. Where else do we see this in Scripture? If you look over in 1 Corinthians 7 real quick, Paul addresses the call of the new believer. He says in whatever state or condition or role they were in, he says in verse 21, were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free Note this, is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brother, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. We also know over in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says to Timothy regarding the church that he was over all who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name and the doctrine of God will not be spoken against. So those who are called while slaves in this manner of service, Paul says to obey those who are masters on earth. If if freedom is offered to you, yes, you can pursue that, but you're to remain where you've been called and, and to serve these masters on earth because what he's talking about here is those who are over you in the flesh, serve them in your entire obedience And to do this according to the flesh, meaning just in this relationship throughout this this temporary world order. The flesh here is not used negatively as referring to sinful flesh, but in a more neutral sense, which talks about the human relations that you're involved in. 
Because the service is not going to be forever. There yet remains for these slaves what we will see later, later, this inheritance, this eternal kingdom order for those who are in Christ. But their obedience, even under this temporary world order, as is according to the flesh, this relationship is vital in its demonstration of the Lord's glory, of his value and his worth. But how is this obedience to be carried out to these earthly masters? What, what should it derive from, and, and who is it to give honor to? And we need to look at this obedience first negatively, as Paul does when he says, not with, but then positively, but with, where the NASB doesn't really quite express the full meaning here when it says external service. Paul is, is saying to the slaves, and to us, this service is not to be done in a superficial way, not done just to attract attention to yourself. And the word that Paul uses here is only found here in Colossians 3 and also in Ephesians 6, 6. Ophthalmo dulia. Ophthalmo having to do with eyes, ophthalmologist, and dulia, obvious doulos service. It basically means don't work to gain eye service. Don't do it as offering obedience to another that's just very superficial. If it's a service that's only done to attract attention from others to yourself, it's hypocritical. It's selfish, and it's for your own sake, not really to please God or even one's own conscience. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians 6, 6, that simply being a man-pleaser, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Another negative way of understanding this in our work environment is if you do something for your boss only when he is around and in a way that only calls attention to yourself to be noticed or applauded. Rather, the positive exhortation by contrast is that this service is to be with a sincerity of heart with pure motives, but a a deeper, a little bit better rendering of haplotes for sincerity here is is with a sense of singleness of heart. And we see this much like what is seen in in Matthew 6.22, where Matthew uses a word related to this singleness or the sincerity as when he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, if your eye is sincere, if your eye is singular, your whole body will be full of light. And what Paul is getting at here is if if your eye is clear, if your heart is sincere, if your eye is single, if your heart is single, you'll have a singleness of heart in your service, meaning it is a service that is with a focused will, much like Jonathan Edwards, his resolutions. He would resolve to do these things. He had a singleness in his purpose, in his heart, exactly like Christ did. Father, I come to do your will. That singleness of heart that produces in us a consistency in our conduct. And this obedient service that is done with a singleness of heart, with a will that is to be done, a singleness of will, not only pleases the masters on earth, your bosses are not only going to benefit from this, 
but in a greater awareness, a greater priority and preeminence toward the Lord, of greater value it would be done for him, to his honor, for his glory. It would be motivation out of reverence to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the heart attitude of the slave and for us in our work must be an ongoing reverential fear of the Lord that provides both the motive and the manner in all of our Christian conduct. And not only in a general sense either, but more so in very specific situations, very specific circumstances in life that are, that are within the structure of authority that we live in. Paul expands and emphasizes this focus further on the fear of the Lord. Continuing on in verse 23, he says, Whatever you do, much like what we read back in in verse 17 of chapter 3, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Paul is, is applying this specifically to the slaves in this passage, but both imperatives apply to all believers who are to serve from the heart, from the soul. But Paul is not saying here to do this service just with great enthusiasm or emotional desire. That rendering misses the intent of Paul's exhortation here. He's directing this command toward the motivation and the effort of the heart, not the degree of the effort, but the motivation that's within it. That the service of a believing slave should be such that their work is done in this ongoing realization preeminently to the Lord for his glory. And with this motivation, this singleness of heart, the outcome of the work will also benefit the human master. But it has to be, it must be primarily a motivation unto the Lord versus unto man. Paul continues in verse 24 with, with, he says, knowing And this is being persuaded within that by the Lord's grace and the working from the heart in the fear and reverence to Christ, knowing this and being persuaded within that from the Lord, these slaves will also receive the reward of the inheritance. They are are grounded, if you will, in their motivation with such vital spiritual life and enablement by the Lord in serving the Lord, in serving man that they will receive their reward from the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately in the kingdom. And this, this surety is believing that their, their fair recompense for faithful service comes from Christ himself, its possessor. This is none other than the inheritance we read of in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. This is our motivation, even in our vocations, which there are no separations between sacred and secular, all the work that we do is sacred unto the Lord. And this inheritance is for all who are in Christ, whether slave or free, who are sincere in their service is unto the Lord. For in serving their masters according to the command of Christ and reverence to him, they are serving Christ himself. They are giving honor to him himself. Not that 
Christ is in need of anything. We don't directly serve God because he is in need of something from us. But in this heart motivation of sincerity and worshipful fear, our service to him is in dependence upon all that the Lord supplies. All that is needed to fulfill this service here on earth, in the body, in our jobs, into the world, is from him. Because it's his strength, it's his grace, his wisdom, his skill, his joy that we receive that we're even enabled to live here, much greater to work. And even though the, these masters on earth, these slave owners may have paid some numbers, number of shekels for these slaves, it really only gave these masters power over their bodies, over their time and their labor. But to know and believe that the Lord himself has bought them with his own blood therefore declares that he has an eternal claim on their body and their soul that cannot be lost. It cannot be overturned. It cannot be annulled. And these slaves are to no longer live with this world or their masters as their dominant horizon in life. It's like Brother Brian said in Sunday school, our jobs tomorrow, decision can be made, boom, gone. That is under the the sovereign ordinance of God in our lives. And in the last statement, actually the last command of verse 24, it says, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve, or a little better, is the Lord Christ whom you are serving, a daily reality. But Paul is, is resuming here, in a sense, the motivation and imperative that was in verse 23 of the do, do whatever you do, do with sincerity of heart for the Lord, But in a greater, broader context of this chapter, Paul is intentionally linking and tying together here this overall Christocentric message, this theme and supremacy of Christ in the admonition of these slaves, and this being the song of their greatest privilege. But now in verse 25, he says, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. And what Paul's doing here, he's, he's laying the groundwork, the basis for obeying verse 24 by tying it together with the use of, of for or because, gar in the Greek. And he's telling the slaves here that just as the reward for faithfulness is sure and true, true for those who are in Christ, it is the same way that the consequences, the judgment for wrong, for disobedience, is just as sure as this judgment does not differentiate it is impartial it is always according to works it is always according to their deeds and for the believer we know from 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 that each believer every believer will appear before the judgment seat of Christ Paul says over there in the letter to the Corinthians For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Of course, this is an eschatological judgment. There's a not yet future judgment for the believer. But there is an already judgment for the believer, for those in this life of the believing slave, for any of us who continue doing wrong, not repenting, 
not seeking the Lord's grace and forgiveness, there will be godly discipline. There will be a reproving determined by the Lord according to the measure of the wrong in question. We will be corrected and disciplined by our Heavenly Father. But Paul has shown in these these four verses of this section this very practical application, but also his great concern for these slaves, for these members of the church in Colossae, that they do not view their service to their master, Christ, as, as an excuse or develop some reasoning that they can treat lightly their obligations to their masters on the earth. There will be judgment if this hard attitude or reasoning sets in as they are now called to do their work from a, from a sincere heart with a single focus to honor Christ who has ransomed them from all eternity and who is their inheritance. As I said earlier, sadly, the editor of the translated text made a poor call in separating verse 25 to chapter 4, verse 1, but Paul concludes this section with, with a very strong exhortation to the actually the household members in the church who were Christian masters, who were the fathers, who were the husbands of these households. And Paul has a, a very brief but countercultural exhortation to them as well. Even though they were fewer in number than the slaves likely in this church and in these households, his admonition is very powerful in that it brings to light that merciful, undeserved fairness and justice that the Master in heaven has shown them, that they are in like manner to show to these brothers in Christ, even though they be servants and slaves in their family. And for these masters to demonstrate to the rest of the Greco-Roman world around them just this fair and just treatment, rather than simply treat their slaves as property, but fellow heirs in Christ, was completely against the cultural norm. And Paul here is commanding them to grant this. It is due to them as parexomai, which which is offered to them and show to them, demonstrate to them a fair treatment as those who are the brotherhood of Christ, as a member of your own family, and especially as a member of Christ's body. And this this fair and just treatment was a testimony to God and to the society that these masters had surrendered their dominance and their pride within their own household, forsaking these these opportunities to demonstrate rather an abuse of power, to show a reciprocity of love to these slaves as a testimony to Christ's supremacy and the lordship of Christ in their own lives. And this outworking of this command would be to willingly provide those tools and resources necessary so they can complete their task in a reasonable, successful way. Pretty much a model for Christian employers today. I mean, this is what a a godly manager should be doing, treating them with fairness and kindness and providing what they need to be successful in their own jobs. But the master's motivation is essentially the same as the slave. Both master, slave, have a greater master in heaven. Both owe obedience to the Lord of heaven, and their own relationships are to be understood in light of this. Now, as I was studying and prepare this, a lot of applications came to mind. I just want to pose these questions to you. 
you know, if we look at, at here at this passage in Ephesians 6.6 6, and also in Romans 6.18, that we're not to do this by way of eye service as men pleasers, as slaves of Christ, but do the will of God from the heart, recognizing that we are all in Christ. We are all now slaves of Christ, slaves of his righteousness which comes from Christ. And even in Revelation, it says we're considered to be his bondservants. So as slaves, as bondservants, we are to preeminently obey our Lord and Savior, to have a sincere heart, a singular eye, and a will set on doing the work as unto the Lord, because our employers will benefit from this greatly. And in this synergistic work of the Lord, are there not opportunities within this to testify of the gospel? And, and in this, even further fulfill the commission of Christ to take his gospel to the world. But in light of this, let me ask you the question to ponder on. What does your work look like when you're alone, when nobody's around? This really resonated with me. I've, I've just worked out of my house for the last 20 years. The temptations are plentiful. The distractions are plentiful. But if we consider what Proverbs 5.21 says, for the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches his paths. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. His eyelids govern the paths and the works of man. Well, what does it look like when the boss is in the room and when he's not in the room, when there's a meeting of peers, meeting of superiors? Is it with external eye service or is it from a sincere heart? And speaking of a sincere heart and singleness of heart and will to do whatever we do, whatever work we're engaged in, not only in our job, but also in the church, do we have that singleness of heart in both places? Do we still kind of tend to separate what's consider sacred and secular? Or do we see all manner of service, whether in the church, in the body, or work, as a sacred work unto the Lord? And are we motivated by the person of Christ, his example, and in prayer, in supplication for ourselves and for others, seeking out those means of grace that enable us to serve with a singular heart, with a sincerity, one to another and, and to our employers, so that he may be glorified, that he may be magnified. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your, your word probes even into the very practical Daily, even, Lord, the, what we may consider the very mundane things in life. But we thank you, Lord, that your grace even reaches to these very practical matters and to the very fundamental relationships that we have and share in within our families, with, within our workplace, and, Lord, especially within your body. I pray, Father, that we would continue and, and grow in, in seeking out and praying for a, a singleness of heart, a sincerity of heart in all that we do, 
whatever we say, whatever we put our hands to, Lord, that it would be unto your glory to please you first and foremost. And in that service, Father, seek those graces necessary to to accomplish that task, Father, as well as we can by the graces we receive so that you may be honored and pleased in all things. So thank you, Father, for this time in your word. I pray that you would make it effective, that it would have its purpose and working within us as you desire in accordance with your will. In Jesus' holy name, amen.